Hello everyone and welcome to episode 124 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, happy FIFA Day, one and all. Studio closure rocks the game industry. Best clear out those hard drives for Red Dead kids. And in our book club, there ain't no power up like dancing at Super Mario Bros. 3. Let's start the show. Link to the Cast episode 124 from your friends at linktothecast.eu. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. I'm your party host, Dave Ryan, and I'm joined on the line by the returning hero, the man who now has a lifetime record of Mark Robinson 1, Laptop Charger Cable 1. We are tied going into the dead rubber. Mark Robinson, how are you? <laughs> Yeah, I um, it's fu- I, I think what it happens is uh, it's fine if your cable is frayed at one end, but as soon as the other end, which is connected to the actual plug itself, starts to get frayed, uh, I just I was looking at my MacBook last week as we were talking, and I was at thirty five percent, and uh, on the MacBook charger, there's like a little kind of LED light that is either red to tell it's charging or it's green, and you're fine, and it was doing nothing. It was not mm. not showing any kind of light at all. And uh, I was like, huh, I'll try the old take it out, put it back in again um, in laptop charging All right, terms. okay, this is a family show. <laughs> and, uh, and nothing happened, which I guess is kind of um, something I'm used to in my life. And uh, and I was like, right, well, I guess, I guess I'm down about 30 quid as I get a new one. So, But it's all, it's all fine. I have a new one, um, considering my... Part last MacBook charger lasted me the entire time I've had this MacBook, which is oh going on five or six years now. Uh, mm. I will take that. I think that's a good run. Yeah. So um, yeah, that that obviously caused an inconvenience last week. But as usual, the Roman Reigns of audio uh, was able to jump in and save the show. What are you like in some ways? Although it's a much less flattering comparison, the John O'Shea of audio. What a utility man coming in at the last minute to fill in whatever position is needed. Wouldn't that be uh, God? Wouldn't that be like um, fuck? Who am I? Th- I'm blanking. Liverpool. I wanted the least trendy utility player I could think of, which is why I went with John O'Shea. I, I'm thinking uh, as opposed to picking like any random Dutch player who could play anywhere on the pitch. No, who's at Liverpool at the moment? Journeyman. Um... I think he's in centre mid at the moment. English. Milner? Milner, yeah. Yeah, James Milner. The James Milner of audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so thanks again to Jack for, for stepping in at the last second um, and saving the show. But uh, other than laptop issues, how, how have you been, buddy? We haven't really talked that much. No, uh, my nan came to visit Dublin last weekend. Mm-hmm. Her first time in the beautiful, uh, is it the Emerald Island? Is that what you call it? I can't remember. Well, that's what we call the whole country, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I suppose Dublin, you probably wouldn't classify it as such. Uh, more of a kind of burning trash fire of an island <laughs> at that point. But no, what part you're in? It didn't take her to like Ballymun or something like no, that. No, no, no. We 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 kind of stuck uh, as, as central as possible. Um, but no, it was very nice. She very much enjoyed it. Uh, she said she thought that everyone here was lovely and it was a very nice place. And I was like, huh, you must be having a real kind of. Uh, 
been really fortunate with your experience. Yeah. Well, you see, here here's the thing I find, and it's something that, like, and obviously I was talking about this with Jack last week on the show. I'm just back from a trip from London myself. And I find there's, like, a little, I know the, the British trope is excessive politeness, but there's, like, a little touch extra like when you're in london or you're in a big city or something like that over in england like there's a certain level of gruffness because everyone's trying to run everywhere all the time yeah i've never understood this like stereotype of british excessive politeness because london you're you're rude as fuck for instance well there is that but (laughs) london does not qualify under that like if you spend more than 10 minutes on the underground it just no that is not a thing at all Whereas here, like, it's a thing that uh, friends of mine have often remarked upon is that, like, if an Irish person steps off a bus, they will thank the bus driver just automatically. Yeah, I have noticed that myself. Yeah, and I've done that in different countries where the bus driver will just give me the fucking side eye. <laughs> uh, or, or there was one time I did it on a bus in San Francisco and the, the lady driving the bus was so fucking overwhelmed that I said thank you that she was like, aren't you just the sweetest? Well, I would have I thought if you were in San Francisco that it would have been a, a robot or an android or no driver there at yeah. all. So it, it definitely uh, certain parts I was in were were like that. Yeah, uh, but a, a good time was had anyway. It was a very nice time. Um, I took her on the now fabled "Look What You've Done" tour, so we went straight to the GPO. Um, we we looked at the bullet holes, all the the nine yards that come with that. Um, she came last Friday, which was. Uh, culture night which now i've been living in this country for a couple of years now and i was not aware of culture night as a thing obviously i've only been living in dublin for the last six months um although as far as i'm aware culture night is is a thing that's kind of across the country because i i saw people in in belfast were um celebrating it as well uh can you can you tell me a little bit more about culture night so it's just like a general night to celebrate the kind of like parts of the community that are into the the, the artful expression. So like you get a lot of musicians, you'll get a lot of art stuff going on, uh, street performers, there'll be plays, things like that going on. It's just kind of an because uh, one of the things Ireland proudly boasts about uh, as as one of its exports is is culture um and, and kind of literature and things like that so it's it's a and night to celebrate as well no yeah exactly it, it's a night to celebrate all that um and like you said yeah the big cities tend to do big street performances things like that but then kind of more regional areas it would kind of be a thing where you might notice it just going down the street but if you're a member of the community you'll hear stuff like that so you would have been here in newbridge and because you kind of hung out with us and weren't like a local, you wouldn't have like been hearing off people what stuff was going on in Culture Night. So we, this year, for instance, they they had like a big in art installation down by the like a couple of empty shopping units down near where the big shopping center in town is here. They turned it into an art gallery for a couple of days, and they had like a kind of little fairground going on down there. So. Yeah, it's it's a nice thing to do, and it was a really good coincidence that your nan was over because it kind of shows off the vibrant side of Dublin everybody hears about uh, when they come to visit, uh, as opposed to the uh, like drunken fighting side of Dublin that you get in Temple Bar at about 2am. By the way, I'll just take this opportunity. Anybody who isn't Irish, if, if you're listening to this and planning a trip over to Ireland, don't go to Temple Bar. 
everybody drinks like it's the end of the fucking world and it's a miserable place to be and everything is so fucking expensive. Go anywhere else in Dublin city centre but Temple Bar. I Honestly, you can literally do a two minute walk and find whatever drink you're buying for about two euro cheaper. Because I had yeah. this with Nan. She's like, oh, I want to go to one of the, the Irish bars and hear the Irish music. And like, we got a, we went in there and uh, we she was like, I'll have a, a glass of house white. And I was like, okay, I'll have... Um, uh, cause light or something and she gave me a tenner and i looked at her and i was like uh nah you better make that 20 and then i came yeah. back with four euros of change she's like what the fuck and i was like it's you're in temple bar and she's like yeah. oh right i guess it's just because of the atmosphere and i was like yeah sure yeah. the atmosphere that's what it is the atmosphere of constant stag and hen parties round the fucking clock and um, wonderwall blasting out of some yeah. fucking pub but here's a trade secret. If you're coming over and you were going to go to Temple Bar because you want to go to an Irish bar, here's a little pro tip. It's Ireland. They're all the Irish bar. <laughs> <laughs> so just go somewhere. The booze is a little bit cheaper. And if you don't mind what booze you drink, drink Guinness because it's a little bit cheaper than a pint of beer uh, uh, in most places. But, uh, uh, but other than that, it was fine. And she had a very nice time and she got home safely. And yeah, it was it was good. And uh, I... We were talking about this a little bit before, um, and I've had this, like, back home in London when I've taken people around. Like, you see more of a city uh, than you kind of realise, even if you've lived in it for ages, when you take someone who doesn't is, doesn't live in the city. And so yeah. I definitely had that in London a lot. Uh, and I kind of had it with Dublin for the first time, because a lot of time I've spent in Dublin has either been early in the morning travelling elsewhere, or in the evening going to shows or whatever. I haven't really spent many kind of weekends just wandering around with no kind of real mm. aim or intention and just taking everything in and i definitely got a different vibe to the city than i've had before that actually it, i grew a fondness for the city that i hadn't had before uh, which uh, yeah i kind of i kind of see dublin slightly in a different light although mm. i still never want to be in parts Temporary. of the city at two o'clock in the morning ever again yeah it's when the freaks turn into weirdos yeah um supermax on o'connell street is a particular mm-hmm. uh, yeah um, uh, just a little quick shout out as well. If if anybody's interested in, in kind of Dublin alternative history and, and different kind of cool culture things about the city, uh, there's a blog called Come Here to Me that's uh, run by three guys, one of whom I went to college with, a guy called Donald Fallon, who is now a ridiculously well-renowned Irish historian, which makes me feel tremendous for all my fucking accomplishments in life by comparison. Um, But yeah, it's a blog about alternative Dublin history. They have two books out that are both really, really good. And he does like a daily feature or a week, oh no, a weekly feature called Hidden Histories on News Talk as well. If you're just looking for a little bit of that, like you said, that different flavor of Dublin as opposed to anybody, maybe generalist you might have heard but enough about dublin um Mark, oh, are you all right you okay yeah um i've got a dog you do have a dog i was gonna talk about this last week because i had just gotten him at that point i'd only just had him a week but i said mark's gonna want to be here for puppy chat so <laughs> i put a pin in it with jack um yeah i got an eight week old golden retriever two weeks ago how do you feel and- about that pretty good like um yeah i like him a bunch yeah um like there's obviously the the kind of puppy stuff where he doesn't really know how to he's not toilet trained properly yet um and he's teething so like he he chews loads of stuff um but other than that you know he doesn't 
Here's the funny thing, right? So, you know the way they say, like, puppies will cry at night and it's important for you not to go down to them because if you go down when they're crying at night, they'll always think if they cry, they'll get you to come down. So they'll never stop crying. So the first night we got him, the night he was he was nervous, he came home and then we traumatized him further by giving him a bath straight away because he smelled like he'd been living with 10 other dogs, which sure. he had. <laughs> um, so we gave him a bath and then eventually we put him to bed after playing with him for a while. And we thought this is the night where he's going to cry. There wasn't a fucking sound out of the dog all night. Brilliant. Went through our, our second day as much as possible. Like I, for the first week or so, I was kind of I was mostly off work, so I was hanging out with the dog, getting him used to the house. Because it's unfair to immediately just dump him in the house on his own and head off for full days away. Um, so we were chilling out all during the second day. Kind of he 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 loves napping. Like about 60, 60 to seventy percent of the time, he's completely docile, likes to sleep at a bit of a chew, and then thirty percent usually in the evening somewhere between 8 and 10 p.m. he gets really hyper but uh the second night we, we went to go to bed and we were quite late up because we were playing with the puppy and then we watched a movie so we were going to bed about 1 a.m and we started hearing howling coming from downstairs right and i i was like right i'm gonna go to because it's one o'clock in the morning and the neighbors are gonna hear it like to be fair toby has been so quiet the rest of the time that the neighbors either side of me don't know we have a dog yet <laughs> Like, that's how quiet this dog is. It's fucking unnerving how chill he is. But anyway, so he's howling. I was like, at this hour of the morning, I I don't think the neighbors can hear, but I want to stop him from howling just in case they can. So it was a case of I'm going to go downstairs. I'm not going to look at him directly and just see what the problem is in case because we were just slowly introducing him and the cat to each other in case it's a case that the, the cat scratched him. I want to know, but I don't want to give him the attention. So I'm going to go down and not look at him directly and see what happened. It turns out the only reason he was crying is because uh, the the poor little spoiled boy doesn't want to sleep out in the kitchen where there's only tiles and a little bed. He wants to sleep in the big carpeted sitting room. Uh, sure. So that's, as soon as I open the request. door and let, as soon as I open the door and let him in there, I haven't heard there, like when we put him to bed every single night, there isn't so much as one yelp to see where we've gone. He doesn't care. He just trots in and goes to sleep in the sitting room. Yeah, he's got his space. That's what he wants. Yeah, and thankfully, like gold retrievers are a fairly smart breed of dog, so he knows that he's not allowed to go to the toilet on carpet. He hasn't gone once on the carpet in nearly three weeks uh, of having him, because the the bed he slept on when he was a tiny puppy. Uh, was made out of carpet and that was the only carpet he'd ever seen so i think he associates that with comfort which is why he likes to sleep there and why he won't go to the toilet there that's because you have a rug that really ties the room together uh not anymore he saw to that okay right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, when 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 he started teething that was the first thing that he targeted but like there's been no apart from that rug which we were going to throw it anyway when we got wooden floors um he hasn't destroyed anything like apart from his own toys he's tried to get a hold of the blankets that we put on the couch a few times but uh i i've i've put paid to that i've stopped him whenever he tries uh but yeah other than that it's it's been going great with the puppy that the cat is fucking fascinated by the puppy he uh we got the cat so young that we don't think the cat had ever seen a dog before so (laughs) as myself and myself and brian were saying he's probably sitting there just going that cat has really fucking let himself go well he's also probably not really ever seen what he looks like before so maybe the cat thinks is Uh that what i look like because even at eight weeks old toby was significantly bigger than hobbs um so he wasn't dealing with that very well but now like (laughs) 
there's a video I have on my Twitter at the day to Dave where like Toby is just chewing something and Hobbs is in the distance just glaring at him. And that was pretty much the first week. Uh, but now the two of them kind of run after and chase each other and play around and kick the shit out of each other. <laughs> so, you know, it's not quite we're best buds. We sleep beside each other yet, but like it's going much better than I had any right to expect it would considering what a sociopath my cat is. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's puppy chat <laughs> for the week. You got a good dog. Yeah, I have a very good dog, and he's a very handsome boy who takes uh, an incredible photo. He's very photogenic. He's very photogenic. Once I'm back from Germany, uh, I'm going to Germany next weekend. Um, you'll have to come over. I do. I do need to see my godson. I do. Indeed, yes. your dogson. My dogson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, let, let's finally talk about video games, buddy. Cool. Playing this week. Hey, check it out. I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy 2. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Uh, Mark, I got a lot to talk about, so maybe we should go to you first. All right. Uh, so I, um, on the, in the evenings when my nan was around, uh, so she had my uh, bed, so I was in the living room. Um, and she'd what be a gentleman. You are. I know, right? And she'd be uh, kind of asleep by about half nine ten. So I had a good couple of hours to entertain myself. Um, I obviously have a switch, and I'm still playing through Owlboy, but I've I've kind of taken a step aside from that because I've been stuck on a particular boss for a few days now, and it's kind of pissing me off. So I went back to Sonic Mania, um, just because it's a, a light palate cleanser, and Sonic Mania is a great game that we enjoyed last year. I haven't played it since there was the big content drop, which I think was kind of alongside the DLC, if I'm correct. Um, which means that I haven't played with all of the changes. Uh, and this was even before I actually purchased the, the DLC for Sonic Mania Plus. So I was just playing through the game as, as normal as I've done before. And I realised that there are a ton of changes, like... Stuff that were minor tweaks and stuff that were kind of pretty significant changes to certain parts of the level design uh, and more importantly to the boss design. And playing through it, the game which and the 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 minor complaints that I have or had with the original incarnation of the game, uh, a lot of them revolved around just kind of certain parts of certain levels where. You know, Sonic is a game that is all about speed and just not being stuck in one place for any long period of time. Mm. Um, And there are a couple of sections in Sonic Mania that fit that description. Uh, But the place where that was most key were a couple of the bosses. Uh, Mainly the Oil Ocean boss and the uh, Super... I can never remember what it's called, but the, the Speedway... Uh, boss as well, which is basically uh, Metal Sonic. The Metal Sonic one in particular, because that has the the kind of little head, mini hedgehogs that come out with their rocket skates, and you ha- they kind of bounce across the screen, and you have to ricochet them back into Metal Sonic that's at the top. And that fight could take forever, depending just if if the RNG is not going in your favour. Uh, there was a complete rehaul around how um, you could attack. Metal Sonic by either the when you ricocheted the little mini robotic hedgehogs, they were a lot more favourable about going in the direction of Metal Sonic, or you could actually uh, hit them and then two 
uh, light orbs of energy would go either side and one of them would kind of just home in towards Metal Sonic. So that boss fight could be it can now be done in under a minute. Um, and again with the, the oil ocean fight, just the whole uh, process was speed up dramatically. Um, the other thing that they did, which I'm a big fan of, is they finally mapped or assigned the uh, supersonic transformation to an actual button instead of where before it was double tap jump and you'll turn into supersonic um, because it's very easily done that you're just playing and you just double tap uh, double tap the jump button when you're past 50 coins without actually intending to and then you're going to lose all your coins and um, you know you might tactically be keeping hold of the coins to turn into supersonic for a, a boss fight or whatever and they went ahead and they assigned it to the X button, which was a very, very simple idea, but it's a bloody genius idea. And uh, and it just, it, it removes that pain, which uh, occurred pretty much, because I don't know about you, but I pretty much clocked onto where, where to find uh, the seven or eight big golden rings, like by about yeah. four zones in. So, you know, um, after that, you have the rest of the game where as soon as you get past 50 coins, like, oh, I guess I'm supersonic now. Um, so it's handy that, it gives you the option to not have to double jump now. Now it's just got a button to itself. Uh, and then there's the encore mode. So did you? Uh, I can't remember. Did we have a discussion about Sonic Mania Plus? Have you? Yeah, I mentioned it briefly. I literally jumped straight into playing the encore mode with Mighty. Yeah. So uh, I so I didn't know what to expect with the encore mode. I thought that you would just uh, kind of just pick one character and that was it for the the game, but. It does this really neat feature, kind of like Sonic Colors to a degree, where you have like an alternating cast of, of characters that you can use between the five characters of Sonic, Knuckles, uh, Tails, Mighty, and Ray. Um, and you, you know, you can have up to two running at any time, but there are different boxes around the world that um, can either kind of randomly shuffle the two characters or are um, uh, boxes that have the face of one of the characters you don't have, so then they become part of your crew. And um, if you die with that character, you just go back to the last checkpoint automatically with the next character in your group, um, which means that dying isn't really a thing that can happen unless you're being really terrible. Uh, and, and it works really seamlessly. And um, both of the new characters have their uh, features about them, so... Uh, Mighty can do like a kind of downward slam and also if you're uh, curled up in a ball uh, can take a free hit against spikes um, and, and other enemies of that nature and then Ray has a flying ability kind of similar to the cape in Super Mario World so you, mm. but um, I think it's actually more of kind of an infinite flight because as soon as you jump you can start kind of flowing along um, and it takes a little bit of manoeuvring but once you've got it you, you're kind of free to, to go where you want although you are vulnerable to hits in that state uh, and yeah you know obviously the two of them add um, uh, kind of different experiences in terms of how you uh, explore the levels uh, I think more so with Ray than with Mighty but Mighty yeah. does have uh, different areas that he can downward smash that obviously uh, the other characters can't access um, and I just yeah between uh, considering that was, was only four ninety nine and all of the, the changes that they made to um, different parts of the environment and the uh, uh, the boss designs with just the, the original game, uh, you know, it's a really healthy uh, 
drop of content and I, my only wish is still is that because you have that little bit of Angel Islands in the uh, Encore mode and it's just like I, I wish they were able to give us a couple more levels mm. um, well you gotta save that shit for Sonic Mania too my friend well there is that there is that um, I, I still think that my biggest issue with that game is just that there wasn't enough original levels yeah. um, but I mean in fairness they did so much stuff to the 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 previous levels um, and adding like new features that it definitely didn't feel like they were putting them in just to be lazy about it. You know, they did they did a lot of redesign to a lot of those prior levels. But um, yeah, Sonic Mania Plus is just Sonic Mania in general. Like, it still kind of surprised me just how good that was. Even though I shouldn't have been surprised because um, Christian Whitehead has shown. Uh, what he can do with the Sonic games and the talent he has. Um, but it's still, you know, this was kind of like the, the 2D sequel to Sonic 4, which was just a horror show. Um, yeah, Sonic Mania 2, please. Absolutely. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the Ballad of Joe Spider-Man. Yeah, so I, uh, I've, I've kind of been, I've kind of been like on a media blackout because I'm probably going to get it um, at the start of next month. And other than just kind of seeing all the different random selfies that people are taking, mainly outside of uh, uh, Daredevil's office, um, I've been, yeah, I've been pretty much on a media blackout. But tell me what you think of Spider Man. Yeah, so I'll be staying spoiler free on this uh for your benefit and i know that it's only been out for a few weeks so it's kind of unfair um to everybody if i go spoiler heavy so soon but mark let me illustrate to you in a single example how good this game is okay it came out three weeks ago in that three weeks i have started a new job which i'm still training and reading to learn everything in so i'm quite busy with that i got a dog and I was away in London for four days, and yet still, I platinum this game yesterday. I, I don't know if this is more about the game or says more about you. It says a lot about both, but let's not dwell on the latter. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this game is absolutely a slam dunk game of the year contender for me. I say that uh, confidently that it will make my top 10 easily by the end of the year. And I know we still got Hitman and Red Dead and a couple of other bits like that coming out before the end of the year and fucking um, Life is Strange and, you know, whatever else. I, I still have to play The Gardens Between Us, which is apparently an amazing little puzzle game that's on Switch now. Um, but I can say without fear of contradiction, it is going to be on my top 10. I said with Jack last week, I don't think there is anything that this game does that is entirely revolutionary or evolutionary on the concept of the open world. What it does is it does all these things that we love about open world games and superhero games very well. Uh, the basic combat mechanic, as you well know from even just the E3 stuff that we've watched together, Mark, uh, the, the combat is very like is very well based on that Arkham system of combat. Uh, one button for striking, one button for dodging, one button for kind of like the the equivalent in this game. I won't tell you like that. The, there's a few variations on it, but one button for the equivalent of like throwing your cape to stun an enemy, and then one for jumping. It's that kind of a mechanic. Then there's gadgets that get added into that over time. But what I will say is that the combat in it feels probably entirely more satisfying than maybe any Arkham game. Uh, they've thought about 
the way they've thought about layering in the gadgets over time and layering in the mechanics over time. I don't know if you ever got this with the Arkham games, but particularly not as much the first one, but definitely every single Arkham game after the first one, there was a sense of the the gadgets and the new skills and the new button combinations were being introduced to you so quickly that all you did by the end of the game was you were just bearing down on the two or three things you knew would get you through most combat situations and not really testing yourself would that be an accurate representation um no i i think that i uh, took the time to i mean th- there were certain items that or gadgets that really were any kind of beneficial in, in one or two scenarios but yeah. i did i did feel like i got a, a fair amount of use out of most of the, the utilities that were provided well fair enough um i i, I think that this like in in so many different scenarios, I was using so many different varieties of things that even when, like, there's obviously the open world ISIS where, um, and this is something, uh, have we talked about this before, Mark, how, like, one of the big, our big problems with open world games is how all side missions seem very repetitive, variations on a theme kind of thing? Yes, absolutely. That's one of my, there's a couple of things with open world games that drive me insane, insane, uh, and collectibles and just pointless arbitrary side quests uh, that's just are clearly there as, as a time filler are two of those things yeah. so there's like there's some collectibles uh, well I, I say there's some collectibles there's one main type of collectible and then one that's sort of a collectible so one of the collectibles is yeah, taking pictures of landmarks but that's fine because literally once you get used to like you just uh, hit up on the d-pad to activate your camera aim like you just aim a gun and take the picture you can literally just take pictures of landmarks as you swing by you don't have to stop um and then the other main type of collectible is the backpacks where there's backpacks uh all around the city and for collecting a backpack you get a backpack token which is one of the ways you can uh upgrade your spider-man and get some cool suits and stuff like that um but all of those are kind of like they're they're not straightforward some of them are hidden under buildings or on the side of things so there's a little bit of a challenge there and then as for the actual side quests uh, I find the combat is so well designed that it doesn't feel repetitive unless you, uh, if you're going for the platinum and you end up just doing one type of side quest just repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly until you beat all of them, it can strain you a little bit. But if you're just doing kind of what most people will do in Spider-Man, because zipping around and through the city feels so much fun you're probably just going to do oh look i'm near a side quest i'll do that or oh look i'm near this thing um you'll also get things coming through the police scanner every so often about how there's a crime in the area that just will pop up and you can follow that um so that changes up pretty nice like i i found apart from like the last maybe hour of the grind to the platinum I didn't feel it was getting repetitive at all. I think the story is very well written i think even some of the side quest chains um some of the scripted ones have a couple of different turns in them that that refresh it and even those like those crimes that pop up kind of spontaneously as you're running around the city even though there's enough of a variation that you wouldn't be doing the exact same thing like twice in a row you'll usually be like a couple of hours of playing those crimes in a row before you get back to the same type of one so i love this game i captures that sense of fun um, and sometimes mark it is refreshing to just sit back and play a game that's fun isn't it every now and again it's nice to have a game that falls under the category my questions for you uh so 
does this game uh, is it is it based on any particular uh, Spider-Man story? Is it just a, a totally original story? It's it's an original enough story that kind of borrows and cobbles from um, different fave elements of the lore. I won't get into the story, but like there's a lot of characters um, from the comics, from the the animated series, whatever Spider-Man you enjoy, there are nods to it. Down to and this is something that has been kind of outed uh, out of the bag so it's not really a spoiler for people uh, you can interact with people on the ground and like high five them and stuff and one of them is you can do the finger guns and point at them like the Spider-Man 3 movie the worst montage in cinema history um, which made me cackle but um, like apart from that what you're getting is um, this is a story of a Peter Parker who has been doing the Spider-Man thing for several years now so it's a well worn in world and they've taken bits because the, the the established Spidey timeline um, is kind of played with in this. There are villains who are, or there are figures who we know will later become villains or later become heroes who are not in those positions just yet. Um, there's what I would consider a new spin on the the Peter Mary Jane relationship in this. Um, there's a lot of uh, favorite characters from the Spider Verse. We'll say that 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 pop up that people will be really happy with. And as Jack kind of alluded to as well, uh, with regards to the beats and the story, well, uh, before that we'll go into it, all the boss battles in it are really fun. I really like the boss battles in this. They were the right amount of challenging for me and also the right amount of like fun it, that it never got frustrating. But uh, as Jack was alluding to at the end of the show or at the end of the, our Spidey chat last week, uh, one of the things the story mode does really well is that this game is sold like gangbusters, so I think we all know there is going to be a sequel to this game at some point. Uh, and we know there's going to be episodic content coming over the next couple of months as well that are going to be like little one-shot comic stories. Um, what the story mode does in its last act is build really, really fucking well for that sequel if they want to come back to it. But it, in in and of itself, like it's not like the whole thing is left on a cliffhanger. There's a very satisfying ending to the arc of this story, but it puts the pieces on the board in a way that I am really intrigued to see what a Spider-Man 2 would look like. Um, and I will be I will pre-order day fucking one to make sure that I can have that experience uh, if they announce it. I uh, this game. And does it <clears throat> does it do a good job, good enough job of having uh, enough characters, uh, enemies, bosses, you know, kind of uh, people that are established in the the Spider-Man universe without cluttering them? Like, because Batman, uh, particularly City. Uh, runs into that issue where there's just there's a, a just a a ton of of characters thrown in and some of them are just kind of there as a one shot and then they're gone again and uh, yeah. how, how does Spider-Man handle that? So, so it's not like that thing where like every couple of missions in Arkham City or like all the Arkham games are to some extent a little bit guilty of it where like every second mission is like hey remember this guy hey you remember Victor Zaz hey you remember Killer Croc um no what it is is it picks there are three prominent figures from the rogues gallery we'll say who are major characters in this game one of whom is your antagonist from the get-go one of whom has not turned to the dark side shall we say but has a very interesting arc throughout that game that kind of like slowly gets us there and one 
one guy who is one of the most like renowned when you think Spider-Man, this is one of the people who's in your head. And what they do with him is really fucking interesting because they don't even seem to like they they play with his character in such a way that you can't really tell if he was the bad guy and now he's like on the straight and narrow and no one ever figured out it was him and now he's just like an upstanding citizen or there are traumatic events that are happening to him throughout the game that you think by the end oh this is the point at which he will turn like right near the end of the game um and then the other villains that come in um there's like a a flurry of one or two of them at the very start of the game because the game like its tutorial section feels like you're coming in at the end of spider-man's previous adventure and he's chasing after a, a dude that dude goes away you get a smattering of like one or two of the other enemies as they're trying to teach you the game and then all other enemies apart from those three figures i mentioned go away for huge swathes of the game and then towards the end a few of them start coming back in just for a little bit just for a couple of boss battles that's about it um, so it's not overloaded. It's not like every single side quest is themed after one of the villains and like, oh, you have to do all of Electro's side quests to get Electro or, or something like that. But he is in there, but just enough so that you don't feel, oh, you're just fucking shoehorning this in. And I wouldn't say they really go through any of the like, y- you know how the Batman games, the Arkham games uh, they they overuse all their villains so much that they they really are scraping the fucking barrel with some of them. Yeah, um, yeah. Y- you don't get that feeling. Um, they they use the prominent villains in a very good way, and they use the kind of background villains sparingly enough that you don't feel like they're just doing it because they have this IP and they want to have fun with it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I will. Um... I don't know if I'll have that by the time we get around to recording next week, but um, mm. probably the week after, I'll uh, hopefully will have started and can come to you yeah, I'll with be, my I'll, thoughts on it. I'll be interested to see how you how you get along with it because you you wouldn't be like as big a comics fan as I am, uh, or as like into the big huge open world games as I am necessarily. But I I do think there's a lot of capacity for you to enjoy this nearly as much, if not as much as I am. Well, you do know that you know I, I do enjoy uh, particularly um, uh, Arkham Asylum and enjoyed Arkham Knight as well. Um, and uh, an open world game can grab me, but it it has to provide something that I, I think it's just the, the the kind of Assassin's Creeds of the world really kind of burned me out on a lot of them. Um, and what was the one? I think there was one last year I played that just I just got turned off pretty quickly by, but it's not coming to me. Um, that, right. that's how memorable it was. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so the other game I want to talk about because it came out, if you had the Champions Edition, it came out two days ago uh, when we're recording this, but or three days ago as you're listening to it. Uh, but if you just got the Standard Edition, it is out today as this podcast drops. And that, my friend, is FIFA 19. Um, where, where to start with it? Because I don't want to like get way bogged down into it like i've talked on the show before about how i just completely bounced off the pro evo demo this year i have no interest i didn't buy it didn't wasn't even tempted to after playing the the demo so all my eggs were in the fifa basket this year 
got it. I've been playing it. Like I, I was still finishing off Spider-Man, so I haven't played it as much as I normally would the first couple of days of FIFA. Um, here are the things I have to report. Uh, my my big negative, we'll, we'll lead with the big negative. My big negative for this game is that they haven't really touched career mode, which is my favorite thing. I'm not an ultimate team guy. I'm not really an online seasons guy that much. I like to play by myself. I like to play against the computer. I like to play career mode, get the full management simulation experience. There's a couple of different like small tweaks that have been made to it. Obviously, the introduction of the Champions League and Europa League license is what they're hanging their hats on. And that does add an extra layer of authenticity to the career mode feel. But other than that, like there's no kind of overhaul of the UI. There's no kind of um, like when they introduced the dynamic transfer negotiation thing last year, that was huge. They haven't fucking touched that. Um, career mode is still broadly the same. And that's not a bad thing. There was nothing like there was nothing obviously wrong with career mode last year. It's just I, I like there to be something fresh, something new to play with in my career mode every year. And they didn't really give me that this year. Haven't touched the journey yet. Um, with the, the 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 triumphs and tribulations of one Alex Hunter will have to wait for a little while until I get a bit bored of. Career mode, uh, I've played a little bit of the, the house rules mode where you um, you sc- you can set the rules so that every time someone scores a goal, they get a player sent off completely at random. So that's good, chaotic, fun, and introduces a level of strategy uh, into the game to, like, do you score uh, a few goals early on, get three players sent off, and then try and defend for the rest of the game? Or do you wait to the end and try to pip them in, like, the 89th minute or something like that so that you have your full complement of players for most of the game? So that stuff is cool. Here's what they have changed that I think, uh, just on a kind of a search on Twitter when I was on the way into work this morning... Um, it seems to have divided the FIFA playing public. So, Mark, uh, they have changed the the actual a couple of bits about the actual gameplay, which are some people like it, some people don't like it. I would be inclined to think I like it at the moment, and I think I will learn to really appreciate it when I get used to it. But I'm still in that phase, you know when you get a new FIFA or you get a new installment of a series you're used to and they've changed something and there's a bit of a learning curve at the start. So that's where I am now with it. The the two things that I've noticed that they've mainly changed. Uh, The first has to do with passing. So uh, you'll know this from from playing FIFA in the day, Mark, that kind of you would hit the pass button, you would hit the direction. And once you kind of got it in the vague direction of the player you were going into, the the kind of the ball would almost magnetize magnetize itself towards that player's foot, correct? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now it's pretty much like all the auto aiming in it, almost all of it, is gone. You pretty much have to be dead on with your passing now, or it will go astray. It will go to somebody else. Now, that will upset some people who uh, want to hit the ground running with this game and want to be zipping the ball around the place and creating all sorts of mad passes. What it has done is it's slowed the minute, uh, like until everybody gets really good at it. What it's done is slowed down the gameplay a little and made it a little bit less uh, arcadey, which will turn off uh, Pro Evo fans, I'm sure, and made it a little bit more methodical. Uh, You need to pick your pass. You need to actually be aware where the opposition is and make sure that they can't get to the ball 
just think a little bit more about your passing rather than rely on muscle memory to go, right, this is the point at which I should pass. So that's one thing. And then the other thing, I don't know if you've heard about this system they've in, in, uh, instituted, Mark, this year, but have you heard about this precision shooting? I have not. Tell me more. So precision shooting is a new mechanic they've introduced to try and the, the way they describe it is like it gives, it's a little extra challenge in involved in the mechanics of shooting uh, that will give you a little bit extra chance to score what we in the biz would call a worldie, uh, an excellent goal from like outside the box or just a great finish, something like that. It's a little extra challenge to do that. Uh, and the other kind of the knock on effect, although I don't know if it's a thing they directly intended to influence was if ever you play a game online with somebody or you play against someone who maybe isn't that great at the game or you play, just with one of your mates on the couch, there's a tendency that whenever people get in the box, they don't, again, think strategically and they just spam the shoot button and hope that something ricochets off somebody and goes in. Active shooting has kind of done away with that. And much like with the taking the auto aim off your passes, and this is why I think it might be deliberate. The auto aim going off your passes, I think, is a deliberate attempt by designers to make you think about what you're doing more, much as this precision shooting requires you to think more about placing your shot and i'll explain to you uh how this precision shooting mechanic works mark and you'll immediately get what i mean it is effectively the active reload system from gears of war <laughs> so it requires you now you don't have to i should stress this you don't have to use this you can still shoot as normal and ignore that the active reload thing is there but what the precision shooting thing does is it asks you if you want that little bit of extra precision, if you want to try and get that ball to just sing and sail it into the top corner, get a bit of curl on it or whatever, it requires you to press the the shoot button a second time, pretty much right as your foot is about to hit the ball. Now, if you want to turn the FIFA trainer mode, which was introduced a couple of years ago, which is a way to turn on notifications above your player's head to let you know like what buttons you should be hitting or whatever, trying to train you how to play the game. There's a version of the FIFA trainer you can turn on that's literally just the passing and the active, uh, the, the precision shooting. So it will show you where you're directing the pass so that you can learn how to do this new passing system. And it will also show you the bar, very much like the active reload bar, where there's the green bit in the middle, there's the red either side, you wait until the, the line gets into the green, and that's when you do it. Um, so I'm trying to get to grips with this. Like, the first time, just at a blind, dumb fucking look, the first game I scored... Uh, the first goal I scored in the game was one of those absolute worldies because I nailed it and I had a player who it seems like the better skill the player is at shooting the uh, the, the the easier it is to get it in the green um, but if you like just kind of try to spam square and you square is the shoot button for me circle for most people um, if you try to spam the shoot button and just hit it twice you'll end up just completely skying the fucking ball like you could be dead on the goal and if you really badly miss the precision shooting it's gonna like just be embarrassing for you so i think i can see why people would criticize it because it, it's requiring us to rewire our brains and the way this game has worked since i think fifa 10 however i do think long term this is probably a better way of a kind of gamifying the shooting system 
making the game a more realistic football simulation uh, and of asking a bit more from the player base, uh, asking them to be a bit more skilled at the game. Do you think... um... Do you, how do you think it's going to make any changes to the the online multiplayer? Do you think it's going to make the the slow the game down a little bit, or I, I think it will for a little while as everybody gets used to it. Um, like I'm going to be keeping the FIFA trainer on because I haven't quite figured out at what point in the animation for shooting yet I need to, so I still need the meter to keep an eye on. But like within a couple of months, I would hope that I will be good enough to turn that meter off. And by the time everyone catches up, I think we'll have slowed the game down a little. But I think the average player will be better for it. Uh, and I think we're going to get a much more fun football game. And the what we call, uh, whenever I'm comparing Pro Evo to FIFA, the, the goal feel, how satisfying it is to score a goal at this game. Because it's that little bit more challenging to score a really good goal and not like in Pro Evo where you could just button and score a worldie. I, I think now the satisfaction of scoring a really good goal in this game is at an all-time high i think because of that little extra difficulty were there anything is there anything left um in the online mode in terms of uh, like there uh, the issues where you know players try to kind of time out a game or they it was it did they yeah. restrict it to like three pauses a game or i can't remember what they did with that exactly you can you can only pause when you're in possession of the ball and you can only pause for 30 seconds at a time um, I I don't I can't remember if they limited the amount of pauses on it or not because again this is how seldom I actually play the game I think they did toy with that I don't know if it's something that got kept um, it's still a game where you're not going to want to have your headphones in you're not going to want to listen to the people you're playing against I'll still play some online seasons and it's fun for what it is sometimes um, but they've got pretty much like I don't know where they can go to improve the online stuff further. I'd really love like an online version of career mode that isn't like ultimate team where you just pick it. Like you you and your mate could maybe manage a club and try and take them through uh, a, a league season of random matches. Uh, something like that. But just anything that's more career mode for me gets, a, gets an automatic thumbs up. But that's just me. Okay. Yeah, so uh, with the current games out of the way, I think it's time to uh, finally get into talking about the news. News on the mark! Oh, fuck, Mark. This this first one's rough. Uh, it, it seemed out of the blue and also out of the blue, surprising and utterly unsurprising at once, but just at the start of last weekend, we got the news of... Uh, what was the phrase they actually used? Uh, did a, a majority studio closure of Telltale Games. Uh, so there's about 250 people working at Telltale Games. 225 of them were sacked with very little notice on Friday, I believe. Um, and 25 will be kept on to wrap up uh, kind of contractual obligations. They were finishing up because chapter two of the final season of walking dead was coming out this week so they had to keep people around to basically put that game up or put that chapter of the game up and to kind of wind down the company in total but 225 people sadly out of work a lot of very talented people there uh mark this is a real uh this is a real piece of shit story because i feel my heart goes out to these 225 people 
who will hopefully find jobs in, in short order because they deserve to. Uh, and it is a story of just hideous mismanagement of a company that should have been one of the biggest studios in the world and got to the point where they didn't even pay their fucking employees severance. It is just incomprehensible that a studio that had all of these different projects, all of these different licenses, that had pretty much an entire genre of game to themselves. Like, it's not even just that they're a renowned studio, whatever. They literally have a, 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 a genre of game to themselves could be managed this badly that it's not even a downsizing of the company. It is, it's full-on bankruptcy effectively what we can yeah. see here and it, it's just fucking astounding that that has been able to happen um and clearly a case of expanded too soon and and tried to take on too many projects too soon and, and god knows what else behind the scenes and i tweeted out the other day and and you know we have pretty much from the get-go since we've been doing this podcast have spoken about every um issue that has occurred with Telltale and it's been, you know, a sizable list. And it's clearly come back to to bite those at the top. And unfortunately it's those below that have suffered the worst consequence of this. And the fact that these people have been laid off with, with no uh, severance pay whatsoever, it's just it it fucking astounds me and uh, disgusts me. Um, and I would Definitely uh, hope, and we've seen studios, you know, reach out already and say, hey, you know, get in contact with us, we'll, you know, we'd love to take you people on. Um, it's just, yeah, and like, what the, the CEO, Pete Hawley, says, uh, it's been an incredibly difficult year for Telltale, as we worked to set the company on a new course. Unfortunately, we ran out of time trying to get there. We released some of our best content this year and received a tremendous amount of positive feedback, but ultimately that did not translate to sales. With a heavy heart, we watch our friends leave today to spread our brand of story storytelling across the games industry. Uh, the company says it will issue further comments regarding its port product portfolio in the coming weeks. Mm. Sorry, I just had a random call there. Apologies. Um... <laughs> Yeah, what do you make of this? I I have a real bad taste in my mouth because this is entirely this is a, a beast of management's own creation. They flew too close to the sun. They took on too many deals, overworked their staff. We're seeing on Twitter all week all these stories coming out about how this the company was in a permanent state of crunch which is, for those of you who are unaware, it's a term that, that, that the game industry used to describe that period where you work. What what I think Mark could be generously described as inhumane amounts of hours to try and get a game out the door functioning. Um, they, they didn't put enough money into recruiting the correct amount of people to accomplish this job in a professional manner because all the while they're getting people to pump out these licensed games because they're signing deals left, right and center and they have obligations while all the while they have this old ass busted ass engine that you and I have been giving out about since this fucking show started 124 episodes ago. They would not fix it. They just wanted to get the games out as quickly as possible, sign more deals, make more games, make more money. And all the while, they didn't have even enough in a cash reserve to be able to pay their employees. They were that close to the 
bleeding edge at all times that it took one or two things to go wrong for them to have to sack everybody and not pay them severance. And another thing that really fucking fucks me off about this, Mark, is in the high, like after all this happened, the initial statement got released. There's a fucking statement, the fucking brass neck on the people remaining here in charge of Telltale. I, I, I'm, I, I think that the people that got sacked, the people, just the, the kind of the developers, the creative souls at this thing, they are the salt of the earth. They seem like really nice people. They made some of the most narratively interesting games I've played in a long, long time. But the fucking management of this company come out after sacking all these people and not paying their severance. They come out and say, oh, we have interested partners who are coming in to to fit, uh, to consider finishing the Walking Dead se- uh, final season and whatever they might have another project that's somewhere in kind of development hell or stuff like that like we can all completely write off the Wolf Among Us season 2 I think at this point for sure but yeah they come out with this statement as if to go hey gamers it's not so bad you still might get the rest of that final season of the walking dead fuck you fuck you if you have any money left to bring in partners to try and finish that game pay your fucking employees i don't give a shit if they don't finish that season of the walking dead do the right thing and pay your employees you sons of bitches fuck off like it really is just such a a company that had such goodwill within the industry that did so much like spun off People who came off the original season of Walking Dead, which was this landmark for narrative kind of like the interactive adventure game. People coming off that going to places like Fulbright who have done Gone Home and stuff like that. Like they've really left a mark on this industry and had an enormous amount of goodwill for a long time. But the just the the avarice and the the selfishness and the mismanagement and the short-sightedness of the people who were in the suits at the top of this company have brought it to ruin and now there's 225 people a lot of them living in san francisco which is the most expensive city in the continental united states to live in and now they have no fucking income they have no health care they have no severance package to keep them going until then and you've got a lot of because of the time of year it is and a lot of big games have just come out a lot of studios are actually winding down they're not hiring at this point there were people like um oh oh there there were people like double fine were putting out statements going oh fuck we'd love to take these people they're so talented but we're just at a point now where we're all full up or other studios are saying like we've literally just pared down because that's kind of uh, studios balloon up when they're developing and then kind of pare down a little bit in the post release because they only need to keep on a skeleton crew of like online support or community employees. They move everybody else onto a different project. It's a real fucking piece of shit move from the people in charge of this company. Yeah, and like every time I think about it this week, I just get real fucking mad. Uh, yeah, I'm um, along the same lines as you, uh, and I imagine you know a lot of people within the industry and without the industry uh, out of the industry are the the same um and yeah but i've seen that like some tweets from some people like uh, messaging uh, tweeting uh, you know now former employers of the company uh, and just like you know where's where's the last bit of walking oh, yeah. or whatever and F- just... fuck those people yeah they're gonna go back after like a company they put their blood and sweat and toil into they're gonna come back after being fired and finish that game for free are they fuck you like that it, uh, this is a real there's another story we're gonna talk about that i'm gonna let you run on because i've fucking cut a promo and a half about this story <laughs> um 
But, like, there's another story coming up that this was a real week for pieces of shit on the internet deciding they knew what developers should be doing. And they've just, like, those people, as well as the the board of Telltale or whatever you want to call them, they've all shown their fucking arses this week, and I just hate the lot of them. Do you want to go outside, have a quick stiff drink and a smoke, and just... (laughs) I'm honestly, like, I've taken off my hoodie here. I'm just fucking hopping mad, sweating. (laughs) Um, but it's because like, the, the pay-per-view yeah i know right because like we've spoken before about uh studios being closed off for a number of reasons and i think that the only one that comes closest to pissing me off is um uh god what was the last ea studio that closed down because well visceral. i think it was visceral yeah now that one fucks me off and like that fucks a lot yeah. of people off but even still um yeah, I would I, imagine that those people have the people that were part of that company were either absorbed into other projects or, you know, at least fucking got their severance pay. Um, but here, like, there, there's no, like, positives. There's no good spin that can be done from this. Oh, and the idea of coming out and saying, oh, we'll still get the game finished with an entirely different creative team, like, this... Those narrative games are a, they are a product of the people who work on them. Getting just like a random mercenary studio in to finish them is not going to be a true reflection of the shall we say the vision of the creative people who deserve their fucking money. Like it, like you said, it's the only one of these. So we've had studio closures we've talked about over the course of this show. I think one of the very early ones we talked about, like one of our early shows was around the time there was confirmation that uh, Irrational Games, the Bioshock developer, was completely winding down. Um, But a lot of those people have popped up doing great games elsewhere. Um, We've had Kojima, the whole fucking Konami affair there. That got me me cutting promos as well back in the day. But fucking Kojima got... He got handed a blank check by Sony. He's doing fine. And, like, a lot of those people at Konami were, like you said, either moved on to different projects or just followed him over to the new Kojima Productions. So, yeah, and uh, same with Visceral. And at least... EA is such a large fucking corporation they have the cash reserves to pay people severance so this is probably the the first one of these studio closures where there's always the downside of people losing their job but there's literally no silver lining I could find here no it's nothing it's it's just an absolute shambles of a situation um and uh there was the follow on story I can't remember did I is it in the production notes um uh yeah is this the the final season thing that well, we we're just kind of hitting on well there's that and there's the the employer that's um put in a, a a case basically um to get pretty much everyone that's been laid off about being paid the money that they're they're owed i can't remember if it was put in this no there oh, well, let me see if i can find it um telltale uh case settlement um That was it. Here we go. So, Telltale hit with class action lawsuit for breaking labor laws. Um, this was from Polygon. Actually, had this story up. Excuse me. Um, where the hell did that go? Damn it! Professional audio here. <laughs> it's that kind of like real professionalism that Link to the Cast are known for. Here we go. So, former employee uh, says layoffs violated federal and state war laws. Because one of the things that are coming out about this as well uh, is the absolute state of 
American laws in terms of the protection of workers' rights, among many, many other things that are seemingly archaic when it comes to uh, laws in America. Uh, but a former Telto employee is suing the company in a class action lawsuit, uh, alleging that it violated labor laws on the books uh, in California and nationwide when it laid off hundreds of employees on Friday of last week. Uh, the complaint filed Monday in federal court in San Francisco is a class action lawsuit submitted by Vernie Roberts on behalf of himself and his fellow laid off workers. In the complaint, Roberts says Telltale, which is based in the San Francisco suburb of San Rafael, California, uh, let go of the employees without cause and without providing them with advance written notice as required by the WARN Act, um, which it, the, basically the WARN Act means that it must, and this has been around since 1988, uh, it must uh, notify employees 60 days in advance of any plant closings or mass layoffs. Uh, the Act defines a mass layoff as a reduction of 50 or more employees within a 30-day period, which this would fall under that category yeah. this very much came off like someone ran through the office gone we're out of money get the fuck out of here is pretty much how they were all told yeah so that will be interesting uh i think i've read as well that telltale were or whatever's left of telltale are gonna um you know argue this case but uh ah. yeah we'll see how that goes I think the best argument they have is we have no money even if we lose this lawsuit to pay them. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's this fucking nonsense of a situation. You any last words on it? No, I, I'm all promoted out, my friend. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> Sony finally gave up the ghost after about 18 months, maybe two years of grandstanding. Anytime a multi-platform game came out, they finally just went, ah, fuck it. So, crossplay is now going to be available with Nintendo Switch and Xbox One if you're a PlayStation 4 player. Uh, it begins today, this was yesterday, I believe, with a cross-platform beta for Fortnite. After significant pressure from fans of the gaming industry at large, PS4 owners will be able to play with the people on Nintendo Switch and Xbox One. It's an historic moment, not just for PlayStation, but for all of gaming, as all console players will now be able to play together for the first time. PC, iPhone, iPad, and Android players are also now included. So, this is the first time in console history, like, it is still, like... Nintendo were the or not sorry Sony were the last ones at the table, but still let's let's pause and consider for a moment that for the first time in history, literally every single platform available for this game for Fortnite and for hopefully many games in the future, no matter what platform you hold, you will be able to play with somebody on a different one. If you've got an Xbox Mark, I could play Fortnite with you on my PlayStation. If you have a Switch, I could play with you on my PC. If you have an iPad, I could play with you on my Android device. It's fucking... It, it, it's such a shame it took PlayStation to get this far into the PS4 lifecycle to do it, but it's a hell of a thing that we actually got here at all at the same time. I mean, I'll, I'll be excited about this when they announce it for Rocket League. That was... yeah my first thought because I'm that person but it is a monumental moment um, and what's interesting about this is that this was this has happened because of the I don't want to say mob mentality because that puts a real negative spin on this um, because there's nothing really but a positive that can be taken from this but um I guess you could define it as a mob mentality as you would in the way that, um, it, say, it, it, like, the ending of Mass Effect 3 and, and people <laughs> complain about that. Yeah. Um, 
it more reminded me of like teenage peer pressure. Sure. Where it's like, come on, everybody's having a drink. <laughs> yeah, and I honestly like, and I think we said this before as well that th- there's nothing really that Sony lose from this because I can see the idea that oh no, we want to have um, players playing on our platform only. Um, and you want those players to be spending money on your platform only. But for a start, you know, Sony have won this console race, uh, this generation, you know. Um, oh, yeah. They're not in any... Uh, there's no... They don't lose here. Um, and surely you would rather have your... Uh, if You know, say for me, for example, I have a PlayStation and I have a Switch... I can easily have Fortnite on both of those consoles. If Sony are saying to me, oh no, we only want you playing on our console, you won't be able to play it with anyone else. And if I want to play across cross-platforms other people, I'm just going to play it on my Switch. You know, yeah. um, other than possibly uh, higher resolution and fidelity, whatever else, uh, on the PS4. The, 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 I mean, I haven't really spent a lot of time with Fortnite to know what differences there are across the platforms. I can't imagine many. They're... The, Sony gain nothing by saying no. You can only play on this well, console. Yeah, I think um, the idea of we need to keep ourselves to ourselves of the online play comes from a very last generation into early this generation idea that people will buy the console that their friends play online on, which was definitely one of the reasons the Xbox 360 lapped the PlayStation 3 back in the day was everybody was going there because everybody was playing online there. But as a holder of all three platforms, this like I have a Switch, I have a PS4, and I have an Xbox One. The thing that this generation is... now. Correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree here, Mark, but I think this generation is more being colored by first-party games than it is by online play because online play is so ubiquitous now and all these consoles have a big enough player base that you can get online sessions pretty easy now with random people. So the thing that really set PlayStation 4 apart, apart from getting that head start in year one before anything really came out, is that PlayStation and Nintendo as well are just knocking it out of the fucking park with first-party games, and one of the things we're giving out most about the Xbox isn't that people aren't playing online, because people are playing online. It's that there's nothing to fucking play on it. So uh, I think this is Sony realizing they've got the first-party exclusives that are system sellers. The online thing isn't as huge a factor as it was a couple of years ago because it's so ubiquitous. So now they may as well just put the walls down and not look like the grumpy da who wouldn't come out and have fun yeah <laughs> pretty much um I, I mean really from here now what becomes interesting is uh what other games do we'll, we'll, I, you know will will we see fifa um, yeah i think the full suite of ea games would be a huge one uh call of duty would be fucking enormous sure any of those big fps games um and just Rocket League Call, for me, really. Call of Duty is, a, is an interesting one because they do have that uh, timed content exclusive deal with Sony. That is like true. Like, where the DLC goes first. So that is true. I, I don't know if that deal is still, like, if it expired or, or whether, like, because they're so friendly with Sony, maybe they won't push for it. And if Activision don't push for it, maybe they won't do it. Well, uh, I mean, it could be, I think, depending oh, yeah. on what the, the timed content is, maybe they just kind of, they could have, like, a... a 
a restricted or certain part of of the online just like straight up deathmatch and and a couple of maps um and whatever is kind of like the base uh, level of online uh, play that is available across both platforms maybe that would just be available yeah i think sports games i think call uh, the call of duties and battlefields of the world uh the rocket leagues and another huge one if they did it would be overwatch yeah sure overwatch is the other one as well um if they they kind of break down the barriers and all that stuff i think especially for some of the games that like in that list i just gave like rocket league or overwatch that are a few years old what a way to like refresh and like inject a bit of adrenaline into that community if it's like hey now you can just fucking play with anybody because we all know friends who like i know friends that don't have a playstation i'd love to play some of the games i have on my playstation with them on their xbox uh same goes for switch or xbox like you know and it would be nice to have an excuse to go hey my buddy has minecraft on switch and i have it on the ps4 why doesn't he come into my world on the ps4 we could have some fun you know uh it'll get people revisiting or downloading games from ages ago yeah i mean for me now at this point um no man's sky as well yeah but when do we get splatoon cross-platform that's the big Uh question (laughs) that is the question my friend um mark i'm gonna sit back because i am still sweaty for my promo i'm gonna open up pepsi max and i'm gonna let you unload on the the shall we say community uh, in a very loose way uh, of describing that word around total war rome 2 tell me what happened this week okay so this isn't the first game that has come uh, under this um <laughs> as previously mentioned mob mentality but total war rome 2 has suffered a steam review bombing run over women characters and a recent update, but it turns out the game is working as intended. Creative Assembly's PC strategy game, which came out in 2013, saw hundreds of new negative Steam reviews this week over the frequency with which women generals show up in the game and related claims about historical accuracy. The update that added women to the game came out six months ago on the 20th of March, but the recent complaints appear to have stemmed from the emergence in uh, an image below that you can find out if you go to the Eurogamer article on this, uh, which shows a raft of female generals in one person's game. A cropped version of this image was then used by some to claim the March patch forces players to use female generals in every faction of the game. Uh, Responding on Steam in August, a woman community content editor uh, reiterated Creative Assembly's position on the matter. Uh, Total War games are historically authentic, not historically accurate. If having female units upsets you that much, you can either mod them out or just not play. People saying they won't buy the game because there are too many women in its fine with us, if it's their reason, we'd rather they didn't anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And as you can imagine, the uh, the Gamergate-friendly and neo-Nazi publications reported on it, and then after... Uh, that, sorry, the, the, the phrase is piss babies. Piss babies, yep. Uh, Steam users called for the community content editor to be fired, uh, which obviously didn't happen because fuck them. And it's just... Uh, yeah, yeah, just... Uh... <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't know what more to say than fuck them. Yeah, it's a running theme on the show this week. Fuck them. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, we've seen this before, um, and I think that after the whole uh, fiasco with, uh, was it Guild Wars 2, I think? Um, I think that, obviously, those piss babies 
have have smelt blood and you know where they can they're going to try and find those people that they can get fired and really you know go for that mob mentality but uh, I think that uh, developers and studios have seen how that whole situation was handled uh, which was not well and I don't think we're going to see uh, repeat um, poorly managed situations like that again yeah uh, one would hope anyway um, talk to me about this This is interesting I, I didn't realise this when we talked about it briefly last week uh, with Jack so uh, Castlevania Requiem which is Symphony of the Night and Rondo of Blood we, we saw this uh, c- the Korean ratings board helped us out letting us know this game existed it's going out for Halloween but rather interestingly Mark it's a PS4 exclusive yeah um, more annoyingly it's not on the Switch that's the key thing to take away from this story oh man how how much would that be hashtag perfect for the Switch well it's only the issue that I've got is when we get to and I've been thinking about this is that uh, when we get to the game of the year show I'm pretty sure about 50 to 60% of all the games I've played this year are ports that have come to the Switch, which is going to make my job uh, a little bit trickier. Um, and this... oh, by the way, remind me after we get off here, I think I've figured out a problem with Game of the Year that I can solve, but can continue anyway. Uh, all <laughs> just, right. just, just a little show note that literally just came into my head as you said that. But go okay, on, we'll have that conversation afterwards. But yeah, a PS4 exclusive. Uh, I'm... I don't know. I, I, don't, I presume Sony cut whatever deal with uh, Konami, because um, you know I'm pretty sure at this point Konami will take whatever kind of fucking deal they can get. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, hey, Symphony of the Night is uh, a former book club uh, feature on the show. It's still to this day uh, argued as one of the greatest games of all time and part of the what is now labelled the Metroidvania genre. Um, both games are originals uh, Originals emulated for PS4 uh, with updates including 4K and 1080 upscaling, uh, multiple high resolution backgrounds, different rendering options such as smoothing and full trophy support. So I'd be curious to see how that looks on your big TV on a PS4 mm-hmm. Pro. Uh, I'm sure it would look very pretty. Um, he- here's a real kind of mixed bag of an announcement that, or this news story should i say i i i first said yay because it reminded me that devil may cry is five is five is coming out and then boo because it has microtransactions mm. yeah and all right what what the fuck is this about upgrading your characters using money instead of the fucking grim looking head jewels i mean at this point you might as well just make this a korean mmo because uh mm. that's yeah <laughs> I don't know, I, I only kind of briefly, I, I saw uh, Twitter got a little bit heated the other day about this. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, GameSpot spoke to director uh, Hidaki Itsuno about the inclusion of microtransactions in the game. And he said, we've giving people ability, uh, given, with giving people the ability to purchase red orbs, it's something we want to give people as an option. Uh, if they want to save time and just want to get all the stuff at once, those people can do so. But on the other hand, I don't feel you have to get all the moves. You should be able to play the way you want to play it. So it does seem that it's very much going to be a... Um, you know, if you want to just cut a lot of the collecting orbs out of the way, you can buy transactions. And I don't think it's going to be something that sounds like a very kind of intrusive microtransaction system. 
and uh, and considering that you know Devil May Cry 5, Devil May Cry Five uh, will be a single player experience, it's not that exactly that you're going to be purchasing something that can give you uh, an advantage over another player. So uh, you know when if these microtransactions are implemented in the way that I think they are, I'm not too fussed about it because as long as it doesn't actually interfere in any way with the uh, the overall game experience and I can still just play Devil May Cry... Devil... I can't fucking say it. Devil May Cry 5 uh, as it's just... as it's meant to be, um, then I'm not actually too fussed about this. But still, mm. it's... Uh, it is sad that they're, they're all the same. Yeah, Absolutely. Here's a fucking stonking great fact, Mark. So Red Dead Redemption 2, which I think a lot of people out there are excited for, uh, coming out next month, 105 gigabytes of storage space required for this game. Hoo boy. <laughs> uh, that is a lot for a version one of a game. Um, there's a couple of games I, I've had on the PlayStation 4 that have gone past 105 gig, but that's after, like, DLC and, and updates out the wazoo. I know we're probably getting towards, as we get towards the, the next generation, we're getting, creeping towards where that may be ending up as, like, the standard size for a game, but that is a lot to look at on a piece of paper, isn't it? It's absurd. Is that, like, that has to be the... Uh, most significant amount of storage that's needed for a single game, surely. For a 1.0, it surely has to be. Oh, actually, hold on. Final Fantasy on PC... Final Fantasy 15 on PC is 148 gigs. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, so... <laughs> Unless you have either a one terabyte, but you PS4. know what? But you know what? Yeah, I can even accept that because that's the level of indulgence that I would expect from a Final Fantasy game. Yeah. Unless you have a PS4 with a with a default one terabyte hard drive, or if you've installed a custom hard drive by yourself, if you still got the like the default five hundred gig hard drive, you're which looking is, about one hundred five gig, and you're sweating. Which is what I have. So <laughs> yeah. if I'm gonna play Red Dead, I'm gonna have to. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to do something about that. Yeah, do some spring cleaning, my friend. Uh huh. Right. Okay. So that's the news out of the way, and now we're going to move into Mark Robinson country because we are talking about a platformer this week, the the book club, the feature where we talk about an important game from the past that you should either pick up for the first time if you haven't already. Although with this game, I can't imagine that that's widely the case. Um, or play again if it's been a while. Uh, this week, Mark's pick. We are going for Super Mario Brothers three.
Super Mario Bros. 3 is a platform video game developed and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was released in Japan on October 23rd, 1988, and in North America on February 12th, 1990. It was developed by Nintendo Entertainment Analysis and Development, led by Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka. Players control plumbers Mario or Luigi, who must save Princess Toadstool and the rulers of seven different kingdoms from the antagonist Bowser. As in previous Mario games, they defeat enemies by stomping them using items that bestow magical powers. They also have new abilities, including flight or sliding down slopes. Super Mario Bros. 3 introduces many elements that became Mario staples, such as Bowser's children, the Koopalings, and a world map to transition between the levels. Super Mario Bros. 3 is, a, is acclaimed by critics as one of the greatest video games of all time. It is the third best-selling NES game, having sold over 17 million copies worldwide. It also inspired a short-lived animated television series, which we'll talk about. Remakes were released on the Super NES in 1993, the Game Boy Advance in 2003, and the game has been released for the Virtual Console, for the Wii, Nintendo 3DS, Wii U, and recently Nintendo Switch. So... One of my oldest and fondest memories of playing video games, we've spoken before about Alex Kidd, uh, we've spoken about Mega Man 2, uh, but after that for me, uh, my most nostalgic tinged memory is holding in my hands that yellow box with uh, Mario and his uh, flying raccoon tail in the background. And uh, just the biggest, most exciting Mario Brothers adventure yet. And they weren't wrong. Uh, and I spent many, 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 many hours playing this game. Um, and it was the first Mario Brothers game that I'd ever played. And, you know, when I saw... that we, We've... It's been discussed, and you can read about it anywhere or watch anything about it. The, the kind of weird um, red-headed stepchild in the middle that is Mario Brothers 2... Uh, mm. And in a lot of ways, uh, Mario Brothers 3 really is the, the proper sequel to the original Super Mario Brothers. I think you would agree with that. I, I think so too. Like, even if you didn't know about the whole Doki Doki Panic situation going on with Mario Brothers 2, uh, there's something more kind of genuine to the, the spirit of the original Mario Brothers about this than than ever with uh, Mario Brothers 2. I, I'm going to open, because we usually talk about our, our, our initial experiences with this game, so I'm going to open mine with what I would hope is the most unusual sentence you've heard today, Mark, and that is, I was once briefly and inadvertently kidnapped. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Alright. So, Do you go uh, on. I had a friend in school, Rob. Uh, this is so... God, what year did this game come out? Uh, this, um, was, this was 98 in Japan, and for us it'd be 91 in Europe. Okay, so it was several years after the game came out. It would have been, like, I would have been junior infant, so this has been 1995. Um, I, I was talking to my friend Rob in school, and he said he had Mario Brothers 3. I had never played Mario Brothers 3. And he was like, do you want to come over to my house and play it? I said, that sounds like a fucking great idea. Or whatever I would have said when I was five. Probably something like, yeah. Um, so we came out of school that day. And I I probably, like, you know, kids, they don't pay attention to what adults say. <laughs> Rob said to his mom that I was coming home to play Mario Brothers 3. And what I think happened was, I think his mother said, does your mom know that you're coming with us? And I, not paying attention, probably said yes. She did not know. 
Uh, so I went to his house and played Mario Brothers for three hours, during which time my mother thought I'd been abducted off the face of the earth. <laughs> she came up to collect me from school. I was not there. No one knew where I had gone. He did not have a con. Or my mom did not have a contact number for this woman, the the mother of a friend of mine. At this point, because this was before mobile phones, we were all working off landlines. Sure, she was out sure. frantically running around town trying to find me. Oh my word! Um, after we we played Mario Brothers for quite some time, I got dropped back to the school where my uh, it's fair to say dishevelled mother. <laughs> was waiting for me and I had a less than pleasant evening when I got home some <laughs> some words were said to me uh, that explained very much how I had been in the wrong in this situation and obviously you argued this because you felt very much of the right because you'd got to play Mario Bros 3 for the evening yeah well what probably happened was I probably cried a lot uh-huh. um, and it, suffice to say I didn't go over to Rob's for quite a while after that again but whenever I think of Mario Brothers 3, that's immediately what I think of. But at the same time, this is when I think of the classic Mario experience. I don't think of Mario 1 and I certainly don't think of Mario 2. This is the game I think of. And I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't be well versed in, in video games like we are, who aren't like obsessive to a point of illness about it who when they think of playing Mario as a kid because everybody played Mario as a kid if they grew up in the 90s this is probably the one they have in the back of their heads yeah well I I go between this and Super Mario World um but you know this was the first one that I played and and like with a lot of those uh nostalgic games uh, a lot of the nostalgia comes from the music um and Mm -hmm. obviously Mario music is is infamous and Koji Kondo is uh, one of the great composers of our time, uh, certainly for that era. Um, but the thing about uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 is it's, it's that classic case of taking what's come before and expanding and refining on that to make you know what was there before and making it even better. Because the original Super Mario Bros., as uh, classic and as infamous and as influential as that game is because you know pretty much every platformer that's come since that game uh, can trace its roots back to that particular game in 2018 that game has certain elements about it that haven't aged particularly well or a little bit clunky Um, mainly it's the fact that as you move forward you cannot progress back Um, that's that's the, the key thing that um, I always surprise myself with when I go back and play that game. I was like, oh yeah, I can't actually go back where I've been. Um, where Super Mario Bros. 3 obviously uh, removes that and gives you a lot more uh, space to work with and gives a lot more verticality with the ability to fly. Um, there are the There's the introduction of an overworld map, which in again in 2018 is uh, a pretty kind of what feels like a minor feature in a in a 2D platforming game and obviously that feature would become um not always the way that a game would go if it's going more down the uh kind of metroidvania route um but you know i i think about me playing um donkey kong country tropical freeze and obviously that uses a, an overworld system and it gives a good way of breaking these levels up um, to include as much content with them but then give you a little breather uh, at, at the end and um, before you move on to the next one um, and obviously depending, 
excuse me, uh, depending on uh, loading times or you know whatever the game is trying to hold in terms of uh, memory, um, you know it's it's another beneficial way of uh, breaking those areas up, and it's pretty much been a staple in I think every two D Mario game since, and some of the three D ones as well. Or you know obviously. Um, the way that they approach that in uh, in games like Mario 64 with uh, the castle or um, an overworld in, say, uh, Super Mario Sunshine, which feels like a, an entire level uh, in itself. You know, you've just seen the growth and the evolution of that over time. Um, and then with that, with those overworlds is the, the different themes and how um, the... You really kind of st you start to see the Mario just universe start to explore different types of elements where before it was pretty much just a kind of grassy type area, a um, dungeon type area, and uh, a water type area and castles. Uh, now you know we're seeing these different types of levels. We've got kind of pretty kind of cliche generic like a desert. Um, or uh, a water world, but you've got like the the giant uh, world, um, or you know giant land, or, or the world, the overworld in the sky, that kind of stuff. And um, that progression that you have, where you do the the kind of midway castle that takes you from uh, being on the ground to being up in the sky, and you kind of kind of feel you've made that progression because you, you're just kind of constantly going up until you're in the sky. Um, it, it gave a, a sense um, of I would say adventure because you know Legend of Zelda accomplished that, but you certainly felt like you you, you travelled a great way um, to get into the sky, um, mm. and then there's obviously all the different features that are added. Um, you know, obviously you got the super mushroom, you got the fire flower, but they start to expand on that with the super leaf and the tanuki suit. Um, Love that tanuki suit, man. yeah, uh, and stuff like the frog suit, uh, which I fucking love using the frog suit when swimming around. Yeah. I don't know it's just the you really see the the creativity and the expansion of that original game really kind of brought to the the forefront here uh, in a way that as mentioned Mario Brothers 2 was its own thing I, I think that Mario Brothers 2 is actually a pretty underrated game in a lot of ways yeah. but um, but in a lot of ways also it's it's I know we we constantly make the joke but it in this case it is true it's Mario Gaiden it, yeah exactly um, and so just Mario Brothers 3 just takes all of that first and just fucking makes it bigger and more brighter and colourful and adventurous and uh, it's just yeah it's a wonderful experience yeah it, no it surely is and it's it's something that like the, the legacy of it has, has certainly endured I, I know years later getting Super Mario Maker on the Wii U and you played, you got super into Mario Maker for for a hot second there as well. <laughs> I did, and and like the the amount of levels that are up there online, and you'll attest to this. Like the preponderance of the the overwhelming majority of them were all designed using the Super Mario Brothers three assets, which just goes to show you, like how beloved that game is. Um, it, it's something that I. I 
like part of it is it came around at the right time. It came around like in the nineties when everything was so colorful, so bright and so vibrant, like all the kind of things we grew up with, the animated shows and things like that, that this is the version of Mario, this and super Mario world, that these are the ones that endure with us in the, in the backs of our heads. And, and because it's so colorful and because, I don't know that those different things like the Snooky suit that make it a bit more appealing to younger people, as well as adding the the mechanics in that that come along with things like the Snooky suit for the older player, that will will keep people coming back. Uh, whereas I think maybe with the original Mario Brothers, because it is so much a product of its mid to late eighties uh, release, that's a little bit harder of a revisit. I think. Yeah, I think that's. Um... A fair shout. Um, I yeah, I still think that um, Mario Bros. Three still looks appealing enough. Though I do think the the best way to go with playing Mario Bros. Three is the 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 remake slash re release, the Super Mario All Stars uh, collection that was on the SNES, um, because that updates the the graphics, um, and I think that's usually the way to go. And I think that would be the version that's available on the Game Boy Advance. Um, mm. I like as well the the inclusion um, of the, the Koopalings um, and that they have, uh, you know, you have these kind of little mini boss fights at the end of each uh, world um, and they have <clears throat> their own different approach to how you tackle them. Um, and I just love that when you do um, defeat them and you grab the wand and you get the little kind of victory celebration and you start to kind of fall down from the sky you just kind of hear the music in the background and it's very kind of triumphant and very magical um and then the king is either a frog or whatever else and uh yeah just just getting that kind of nostalgic tinge coming back to me it's making me want to go back and play it and it's it's been many many years since i've played mario brothers 3 but um i imagine like you just the music kind of stays there and it resonates in the background and like as soon as you start to hear uh, a little bit of it you know exactly kind of where it's come from uh one thing i do need to mention uh the sun the sun can go fuck itself uh <laughs> yes. i i as i was a, a very uh timid child would be the best way to put it and i haven't exactly gotten better since um and that sun absolutely fucking terrified me and i would mm -hmm. stay there on the spot like i'd run for about three seconds I would stop, and I could see the sun would be spinning for like another five seconds, but it's like, I'm not moving until I'm exactly sure that I'm not going to be anywhere near it. And I think to this day, I've never actually been hit by the sun, because I'm so petrified of it, that I just want to be, I just want nothing to do with it, so I want to, you know, be as kind of safe in how I get past the, the sun as possible. But I actually don't think I've ever been hit by it. Um, but yeah, fuck that sun. The face on it! You've got the sun in Mario Bros. 3 and you've got the moon in Majora's Mask, right? Nintendo seem to be really good at drawing planets in a terrifying fashion. <laughs> Mark, one thing I, I want to get you to talk about before we, we finish here is something that spun off of Super Mario Bros. 3. And that was when Nintendo of America and uh, the national broadcasting company, NBC, got together with a company called Deke Entertainment to produce the Super Mario Bros. 3 cartoon. <laughs> I fucking love this show, right? Um, now, now, let's just say that this is coming from the creative studio, Deke Entertainment, which whenever you see the uh, the poster for The Amazing World of Deke, it always makes me laugh still because I am 10 years old. 
But this was the same people who brought us the likes of Inspector Gadget, uh, who brought us Mask in the 80s. This will pop you. Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling Connection was wow. a deke joint. Uh, the Dennis the Menace animated show. Uh, the real Ghostbusters. Teddy Ruxpin. The animated ALF series. Uh, and then some other stuff that, that, that wasn't so great. Lovely Lady Locks. Uh Pro Stars, Wish Kid, the Where's Waldo animated series. I've never uh, seen that. I would check the list of Deke programs on Wikipedia is is quite entertaining, I will say. But uh, talk to me about this cartoon because I I have very like foggy memories that like I'm I'm sure I have seen it, but I couldn't give you a single detail about it. So the key things um, to keep in mind when it comes to uh, the Adventures of Super Mario Bros. Three. They do a really good job of taking all the elements and themes of uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 in a way that the Super Mario Bros. movie managed to spectacularly fail at. Um, Because obviously making a cartoon for uh, the Mario franchise is a lot easier to make in a live-action film and has significantly less Dennis Hopper as well. Uh, The other thing as well is that they... What's the nice way of saying they lean heavily into the Italian stereotype of Mario and Luigi? Um, uh, as opposed to racism, we'll say cultural insensitivity. I wouldn't even say in just just yes, Mario's Italian, <laughs> therefore he really likes pasta. It's you know that's like fifty percent of his gimmick. The other fifty percent is saving Princess Peach when needed be. Um, I uh, one of the things that I like about this show is that they uh, they do a good job of giving all of um, the Koopalings a lot of character. Obviously, my boy Roy is uh, the standout star of the show. I think that's probably where my appreciation for Roy comes from, uh, subconsciously. <laughs> um, Bowser is really weird. Like His design is certainly not like the Bowser we've come to know, because he's a giant green reptile at this point. Um, and... It just it looks quite jarring in 2018. Looking back at it now, mm. um, and then there's also Toad, who I've now had Toad scarred for life after the news from last week. And <laughs> oh, what an episode of the show you missed! I don't really want to talk about that. Um, do you know that the show was actually re-released on Steam? Huh, I did not know that, and now I kind of want to get it. <laughs> well, it's 26 episodes long. Uh, and each episode is about 24 minutes. So I'm probably... I, I feel like I need to go back and uh, and watch that. But I never watched... Because there was a follow-up for um, Super Mario World. And there was actually an animated show based on Super Mario World. But I'd never seen that. And I don't know if that was just because it was released in America. Um, and I've never seen like a f- proper episode of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. The one with um, Lou Albano as Mario. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've 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 never properly seen that, but like I've seen clips of it. I I want a remake of that, but with Paul Heyman's impression <laughs> of Lou Albano as Mario. Oh, <laughs> uh, for anyone that doesn't know, there's a a particular episode of uh, the Wrestling Observer uh, where Heyman was on. I think it was after Albano passed away, and uh, yeah, Heyman is he's just a fucking right on that particular episode uh, show, isn't he? Yeah, giving an anecdote about a time that Lou Albano literally took a piss on the streets of New York and the NYPD just laughed about it because it was Lou Albano. Oh, boy. So, yeah, uh, net, uh, network, uh, 
elevator pitch. Super Mario Bros. 3 is um, quite easily one of the most influential platformers of all time um, that follows on from the most influ influential platformer of all time. Um, it adds a whole bunch of features that would become, you know, just kind of standard fare from the Mario series afterwards. But even with all of that and all the games that have come since, uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 still contains that magical element that makes a great platformer. Um, and it's so smooth and flawless to this day. Um, and also still is actually quite challenging. Um, I think that's something that should never be taken for granted. Uh, certainly when you get towards the last stage, last stages of that game. Um, the, the difficulty does rank up when you're dealing with the airships and the, the tanks and whatnot. Um, but just, yeah, just a wonderful game that if you're anyone of our age, I'd actually be surprised if you haven't played this game. So absolutely um so that's super mario brothers 3 uh our last bit of business every week is to put the plant our flag in the sand say what show what game we're going to cover next week mark i've got a bit of a curveball for next week so we've been talking about spider-man a lot on the program i've like i said it's a it's going to be a game of the year nominee for me it's a lot of fun uh we've already talked about spider-man 2 on the program which was i think the best spider-man game uh to the point where that came out are we talking about aquaman but for the gamecube <laughs> no, we're not. But what I want to talk about is a game that helped us get to that Spider-Man game and a game where this may be one of the first times we've done it. But it, it's a game that I think technically may have come out after we started doing this show. But it's one I want to have a discussion about and see if we can find the strands of DNA that led us on to Marvel's Spider-Man on PS4. And it was another first-party, well, a, a console-exclusive game that was done several years ago. Next week, Mark, I want to talk about Sunset Overdrive. Oh, all right. Yeah, so Sunset Overdrive will be our, our game of the week for episode 125. That's going to do it for Link to the Cast for this week. This podcast is available on SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, and most podcasting platforms. If you just search for Link to the Cast, subscribe to us there, rate, review. Please, please tell a friend about this podcast. It, it all helps. The website, uh, once I renew the domain name, which I just noticed in my emails before we started, has lapsed. The website will be linktothecast.eu, but linktothecast.wordpress.com is the, the much longer title title for it uh, if you want to get in touch drop us an email over at link to the cast at gmail.com social media though quickest way to get in touch with us and 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 get feedback and keep up to date with um what we are doing facebook.com forward slash link to the cast and at link to the cast on twitter individually on twitter mark is lithium at lithium project and i am at the day to dave if games aren't your only interest we might have the podcast for you also available in this feed are The Grapp Up, which is a once-in-every-few-months pro-wrestling podcast that usually has some combination of myself, Mark, Jack, and our friend Barry Murphy from the Chair Shop podcast. Uh, and then we also have the When We're Not Busy monthly show that is The Popcorn Social, which is myself and Jack talking uh, all things cinema. Um, we've been meaning to do one of those for a while, but uh, between my London trip, my upcoming Germany trip, and Jack having to fill in on this program, we just haven't nailed down a day yet. We actually went to record it and had about 15 minutes of the show recorded before his internet shit a bed one night, or mine did. I can't remember which it was. It was at the height of that technical difficulties period here on Link to the Cast. Quite, uh, it seems to be a weekly occurrence at the moment. 
doesn't it fucking just my friend these podcasts plus our weekly link to the cast flagship broadcast are all available in the same podcast feed so if you just subscribe to link to the cast on your uh, podcast provider of preference that should do the trick for all three shows and of course if there's any episode any game that you think hey i wonder if the guys covered that or any movie on the popcorn social where you're like hey i wonder if they talked about that just search in the archives over on the website uh, or whatever way you will search through our podcast feed if you want to do it through iTunes, whatevs. Uh, we may have already done it. And if not, hey, drop us an email or a DM saying, hey, maybe you should cover this game or talk about that. We'd appreciate it. Um, yeah, so for episode 124 of Link to the Cast, I've been Dave Ryan. Man on the Line has been Mark Robinson. We shall talk to you all next week. <laughs>